0: This is Guns and Butter.
1: The Health and Human Services uh, Department in the uh, Bush administration signed orders saying that no matter what, um, soldiers could not hold the government or the vaccine manufacturer, this company BioPort that was wildly uh, connected uh, in political circles, uh, could be held ever responsible or liable for any uh, illnesses caused by the usage of this vaccine. And you should also know, all the listeners should know, that uh, it's mandatory for the overseas military right now, but they're also talking about mandatory for first responders and for police and firemen so they're increasing the pool of people put at risk. But this anthrax emergency gives them total uh, liability protection for their actions.
0: I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Eric Nadler. Today's show, Anthrax Wars. Eric Nadler is an investigative journalist, author, and filmmaker based in New York. He has written for many national publications, including Rolling Stone, Mother Jones, Harper's, The Nation, and The New Republic. His films have been featured on PBS and the Sundance Channel. He has produced several PBS frontline programs, including BCCI, Bank of Crooks and Criminals, and The Secret Arming of Saudi Arabia. With his partner, Bob Cohen, he co-authored Dead Silence, Fear and Terror on the Anthrax Trail, published in 2009, and co-produced a feature-length film, Anthrax War. Today, we discuss his seven year investigation into the anthrax attacks of September 2001, the AIMS strain of anthrax, dead microbiologists Bruce Ivins, David Kelly, and others, Bioport and the anthrax vaccine, the new vaccine growth industry, private biolabs, and the new biomilitary industrial complex. Eric Nadler, welcome. Thank you. What can you tell us about the anthrax attacks on the U.S. Congress associated with the events of September 11th, 2001?
1: Well, uh, as you uh, remember, this was the uh, big one-two punch against uh, uh, the U.S. Republic in um, the fall of uh, 2001. Uh, My family lived uh, in New York through those uh, events, and as uh, terrifying as the... uh, uh, events of 9-11 were at the World Trade uh, Center, equally terrifying, but perhaps even more scary uh, because it had the potential to uh, to reach almost anyone, were the anthrax attacks in which uh, deadly anthrax uh, was sent through the U.S. mail and ended up killing five people from uh, varying locations in the uh, Northeast, uh, apparently chosen fairly at random because they had the misfortune to uh, Uh, deal with these letters full of this horrible poison.
0: Now, uh, the anthrax letters were sent to the leaders of Congress, the Democratic leaders, uh, Daschle and Leahy. And of course, that shut down Congress, I believe, for a number of months, which was unprecedented. Now, I understand that those uh, samples from the Leahy and Daschle letters were analyzed. Could you describe the anthrax that was found in those letters?
1: Yes. um, The anthrax uh, in the letters to Senator Patrick Leahy and Senator Tom Daschle, uh, according to Army scientists who uh, examined uh, these anthrax powders, they concluded these were among the most sophisticated, uh, manipulated anthrax they had ever seen, meaning that anthrax such as this did not occur in the natural state. And what they found was that it was milled down, it was ground down to A very minuscule uh, particle size, uh, which uh, would make it a uh, more deadly agent, allowing it to be uh, breathed in and go to the deepest recesses of the lungs, where it would do the most uh, damage, in some cases uh, fatal. And uh, first of all, it was milled down, and that takes great uh, skill and very specialized equipment. And uh, the next thing they discovered uh, was uh, the presence of an additive, they called it, called silica. And silica is uh, utilized in uh, such things to reduce the electrostatic uh, attraction at a molecular atomic level even. And uh, thus also making the anthrax uh, able to float easier in the air and thus be uh, breathed in. Um, if one was to use it as an agent of uh, destruction. And uh, the thing about the um, anthrax is that when Army investigators uh, opened the letter to Senator Leahy, uh, it had not been opened by a staffer. Uh, Congress was already on the lookout for suspicious letters. This certainly was suspicious when they rushed it to an Army uh, biosafety laboratory and open it, uh, they saw something they had never seen before. The anthrax literally floated above the slide. Um, It could not uh, rest comfortably. It was so uh, active and so uh, dispersible and so aerosolized that um, Army scientists could only scratch their heads in amazement. And uh, more than one of them came to the conclusion that this was the uh, result of a very sophisticated uh, program, either by a state or a uh, corporate entity.
0: Well, now, would you describe this? Did they describe this sample as weaponized, what you would call weaponized?
1: Yes. In other words, uh, if it was uh, milled down to a size that it could be uh, breathed in, and if there was an additive put there that would uh, make it more um, dispersable. That's how you uh, weaponize an anthrax powder, uh, by making it something that you can ingest uh, through your lungs. And once it gets into your lungs, it causes all sorts of problems. So uh, calling this weaponized would be a fair characterization of this powder they discovered. And in fact, uh, it was described by military authorities as weaponized.
0: Now, anthrax itself occurs naturally in nature in the bloodstream of animals, doesn't it?
1: That's true. It occurs actually in nature, uh, but the, uh, the powder, uh, where one finds it, is uh, clumpy. It's big. It's awkward. It's not uh, inhalable. And uh, many of the uh, cases uh, through the years uh, where people uh, got in trouble with anthrax was uh, through the skin, uh, or even gastrointestinally if, uh, if let's say, an animal with an anthrax um, virus uh, was consumed uh, by a human. So uh, what you saw were different types of anthrax infections consistent with how it appears in nature. What made the anthrax attacks of 2001 so noteworthy, among other things, was the fact that uh, Uh, The powder had apparently uh, been weaponized and looked nothing like the anthrax one finds in nature.
0: Now, isn't it true that approximately one month after the attacks of September 11th that a collection of samples of the Ames strain of anthrax was destroyed at Iowa State University, uh, College of uh, uh, Veterinary Science, and also at a USDA lab, Nearby, under armed guard and with FBI approval, now was the strain of anthrax that was analyzed in the congressional letters was that considered AIM strain?
1: Yes, it was. Uh, it was positively identified by uh, military and homeland security officials as being the AIMS strain. The aim strain um, came from a uh, sickened uh, animal and was studied by uh, leading uh, scientific institutions. And over the years, it was chosen as the strain of choice for any country looking to work on uh, germ warfare or even uh, on vaccines against uh, anthrax infection. Ames strain was particularly virulent and became the standard uh, strain that was uh, utilized in uh, basically uh, all the uh, military programs around the globe, the Soviets, uh, the U.K., uh, the Canadians, the United States, and, uh, you know, God knows where else, in uh, rogue laboratories.
0: In 2008, the U.S. government accused a dead microbiologist who worked at U.S. Amrid at Fort Detrick with being the perpetrator of the 2001 anthrax attacks named Bruce Ivins. What can you tell us about him?
1: Well, Bruce Ivins was uh, a specialist. He worked in the uh, U.S. military's Select Agents Program with his specialty being anthrax. Um, he was, uh, in the years uh, preceding his uh, sudden death in uh, 2008, Ivins uh, worked on a vaccine uh, for anthrax. And, um, in fact, he's even called as an uh, expert um, consultant uh, by the FBI when they were investigating the uh, anthrax attacks uh, case. Uh, Bruce Ivins was an insider for many years at Fort Detrick in Maryland, which is the home of uh, originally the U.S. Germ War Program, uh, but lately what they call uh, the bio Biodefense uh, Program. Uh, but basically this is uh, an area... On a military base where the most deadly pathogens are uh, handled and studied uh, for a variety of uh, reasons. And uh, Bruce Ivins was uh, at the heart uh, of that uh, uh, bio military complex. And uh, when he was revealed uh, by the Army, by the FBI, to be the uh, anthrax uh, killer. Um, That's pretty amazing admission that uh, it was an insider that had done it. The only problem with the FBI's case against Bruce Ivins is uh, uh, many people don't believe it. Uh, Many people believe he was a fall guy. Uh, Many people believe he lacked the uh, skill sets and the equipment necessary to uh, manufacture uh, this powder. And uh, if he uh, didn't manufacture the powder by himself he either had help uh, from others or obtained it from uh, inside the U.S. uh, biomilitary complex. And uh, many people say that such an anthrax as uh, was utilized in the attacks, if it was within the U.S. uh, military complex, it was a violation of the international treaties against uh, uh, bioweapon development. So... This put the FBI in a very, very tough spot as to how far do you really want to go down the rabbit hole of uh, following uh, this uh, powdered anthrax to its original point of manufacture and uh, how Ivins, if he was involved at all, could have gotten his hands on this thing. Um, This calls into question U.S. adherence to uh, a wonderful bioweapons treaty, that everyone thought uh, had put this terrible genie back in the bottle when the treaty was ratified in 1975. But you can see why the FBI would want to make Ivans a lone gunman and uh, close the case quickly and not uh, raise too many questions. Because to raise too many questions about this anthrax powder is to raise questions about the U.S. Uh, adherence to uh, an important arms control treaty. And I don't think uh, anyone uh, with the FBI pay grade uh, really wanted to go and open that can of worms.
0: Well, Eric, as well, didn't you interview a former head of Fort Detrick who said that the equipment at Fort Detrick was not capable of producing the highly sophisticated form of anthrax used after nine eleven?
1: That's exactly correct. Now, the thing to remember is that uh, Ivan's, Uh, worked uh, his whole career with liquid anthrax. And uh, 99% of the research done in the anthrax division uh, at uh, Fort Detrick, where Ivan's worked, dealt with liquid. In order to go from liquid anthrax uh, to powdered anthrax, is a very, very, very uh, complicated uh, piece of business. And uh, we interviewed uh, Richard Spertzel, who was the former deputy commander at Fort Detrick. And uh, he um, basically said that uh, Ivan's didn't have the equipment to dry the liquid anthrax into this magical powder that was eventually found in the letters to the U.S. congressman. The FBI addresses that point head-on. They said that Ivan's used essentially a hairdryer to accomplish this task, and um, Dr. Spurzel and uh, coworkers who worked with Ivan's laughed that one out of the park and said you would have needed to bake the liquid anthrax in a uh, oven the size of uh, the end zone of a football field for uh, three months uh, before you could uh, begin to get near the powder that was supposedly in the letters and. Uh, you know, Ivan's was supposed to be doing his nefarious deeds um, after hours. Uh, there was no way anyone could not have noticed if he had the right equipment. So his coworkers and his former bosses and people really at the heart and in the know of the U.S. biomilitary industrial complex don't buy for a second that the official FBI narrative comes anywhere close to truth.
0: I'm speaking with investigative journalist and filmmaker Eric Nadler. Today's show, Anthrax Wars. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Well, speaking of Bruce Ivins, wasn't he working on an antidote for anthrax as well, like a uh, an antibody or a vaccine? And wasn't the company that he was working with on this vaccine called Bioport up in uh, Wisconsin. What can you tell us about Bioport?
1: Well, Bruce Ivins, we'll start with him, was, of course, in uh, the phase of uh, time in which the U.S. military was working on biodefense. Their top priority was to develop a uh, vaccine against anthrax because, um, at least the official story was, they were very concerned that uh, U.S. uh, troop movements in the Middle East, in Iraq, would be met by a uh, rogue weapons of mass destruction program based on an anthrax weapon. So they tasked um, the Ivans and his crowd to get us a vaccine um, that if we send troops into harm's way, uh, that at least we'd have uh, uh, something to uh, inoculate them with. And Give them the confidence, if not the actual, uh, maybe the thing would work. Um, and so that's what Bruce Ivins uh, was working on. And as a U.S. military researcher, he was working with the private company that had the contract from the U.S. government to actually make this thing called the anthrax vaccine. It wasn't a government project. It quickly became a government corporate project. And uh, it became the uh, single project of a company in uh, Michigan called Bioport. What Bioport did was um, around in the late 1990s, um, they bought the hardware, meaning the real estate and the software, the intellectual property of uh, something called the uh, Michigan State Biologics facility um i might have the name a tad wrong but what it was was for whatever reason uh, a state corporation in michigan had the the state-of-the-art uh contract for the anthrax vaccine well in the late 1990s uh this new company called bioport came and said we want to buy the building we want to buy the hardware and we also want to buy the um $2 million or so in contracts with the U.S. Department of Defense for this anthrax vaccine. And that became a very important um, commodity um, to actually be able to own the vaccine uh, for U.S. troops being sent overseas. And, you know, a vaccine for troops is uh, kind of mandatory, And uh, 90% of the troops took it, even though there were questions about its safety. And uh, there's been a whole bunch of controversy um, around soldiers who have refused to take this anthrax uh, vaccine, claiming all kinds of uh, health issues, including a woman in our documentary, uh, Anthrax War, and uh, the woman who mentioned in our book, Dead Silence, Fear and Terror on the Anthrax Trail, a uh, wonderful patriotic uh, army uh, sergeant named uh, Private Iwanoska in Fort Drum, New York, who was a um, a very strict uh, Catholic uh, recruit who did not believe in doing anything to harm the unborn And when they said to her, and now you take this anthrax vaccine, she said, forget it. I ain't taking that. And uh, they dishonorably discharged her and uh, threw her out of the service, uh, which I think is a total disgrace. And uh, that's going to be the subject of a future film. But it underscored the incredible power that this vaccine had uh, in the U.S. military. And then you began to ask, okay, who are these people who own this vaccine? And that's one of the things we did in our film and our book, which I think is the most noteworthy uh, from an investigative journalism point of view. Uh, So who uh, really owns the anthrax vaccine in the United States? Uh, We did our due diligence, and we found that, whoa, it's the same people that own the anthrax vaccine in the United Kingdom. Okay. And who are these people? And uh, the chief executive officer uh, of uh, the companies that own these vaccines, he's a man named Fuad al-Hibre, and he is a uh, Lebanese-German-USA three-passport-holding businessman uh, with no particular scientific expertise. He actually made his money in uh, telecoms um, with a huge contract in Venezuela at one point. And if you actually begin to look at who is the money behind uh, this bioport, and this Fuad el Hebre, you get to a series of holding companies uh, based in the uh, Netherlands Antilles, where they have secret banking laws. So then the question becomes, who owns the anthrax vaccine uh, for which they're discharging soldiers? And the question is, we don't know. And uh, that's uh, a key question we raise in our film and our book and in interviews like this one with you, Bonnie. I mean, I think in this era where uh, big pharma is privatized and big pharma um, is aligned with the uh, biomilitary industrial complex, somebody's got to be asking these questions. And um, it's a sad state of affairs, uh, I have to say, um, that this thing is only discussed in um, wonderful but limited uh, exposure areas. Uh, like the one we're sharing today.
0: Well, it sounds like then this whole privatization of the vaccine uh, industry and, and a lot of industries sort of segues into this global financial corruption that is taking place on a on a large scale. I did want to mention, though, originally with Bioport, didn't uh, then uh, head of the Joint Chiefs, Admiral William Crow, own thirteen uh, percent of this company?
1: Oh, yeah. This company, uh, the first name was Bioport, and their latest name is Emergent Biosolutions, EBS on the New York Stock Ticker. If you want to look them up, uh, I hope all the Internet people bang them out right away, EBS. The deal is this was an operation born of political connections. Um, The chief uh, business partner of the El Hibre's when they made their entree into the United States, was Admiral William J. Crow, the former head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff under Bill Clinton. That's as powerful a military guy as you could ever hope to imagine. And um, he uh, entered into contracts with uh, uh, Bioport and the El that netted him a nice piece of business. He was the former ambassador uh, to London, uh from uh Bill Clinton um US and English uh, business uh, associations uh, and military associations in biodefense should be looked at closely uh that's something we've done uh we've here in the UK we're about to be my filmmaking partner and I Bob Cohn, are about to give evidence to the Chilcot inquiry into the uh Iraq uh, war conduct by that government. We're especially interested in the um, affair involving David Kelly, uh, Dr. David Kelly, who is the former head of uh, bio research for the UK's operation, a man who also had knowledge of the anthrax vaccine program and the El et etc. So, um this is uh, a complicated and murky business.
0: Well, since you brought up microbiologist David Kelly, uh who was at one point anyway I guess the head of Porton Down, which is the uh what the uh British equivalent of Fort Detrick. Now, microbiologist David Kelly of course was found suicided in the woods in England uh, near his home. About what was the time frame about that? That was around when? Just before the invasion of Iraq?
1: Yeah, it was in July 2003, and uh, it was at a time when um, the rush to war was on among the Coalition of the Willing. And uh, David Kelly was paraded out uh, very publicly uh, before the British Parliament, for perhaps suggesting doubts about the uh, viability of Saddam Hussein's bio uh, weapons program, and uh, it was allegedly over his embarrassment um, at being forced to uh, uh, testify uh, on TV for, uh, I think, a day or two, um, that he went into the woods and slit his wrists and killed himself. Well, 70% of Britons uh, polled on this simply don't believe it. And uh, one of our favorite fellows, a member of parliament, um, a liberal Democrat named uh, Norman Baker, took one year off from his duties um, as a parliamentarian. Many will say there are not many, but that's okay. He took time off, and he ended up writing a book called The Murder." of david kelly um, saying kelly was murdered this was a uh, long-serving member of the british member of parliament who also had the interesting he had the power to ask uh... police officials very important questions and you know if you and i called them up and they tell us to go to heck but when a member of parliament calls them up they say what can i do for you sir And what they admitted to Norman Baker was that there were no fingerprints found on the knife that Dr. Kelly allegedly used to kill himself. And, wow, that's a big admission. That's the big uh, elephant in the room that uh, anyone in Britain uh, talking about the David Kelly issue cannot get around And um, no one has denied that Baker has said this, and uh, no one has denied that the uh, Thames Valley police who investigated the murder had said this. And so it stands out there that the leading British uh, germ warfare scientist, uh, who the official story says killed himself, is totally unsupported by the first level of inquiry conducted by a member of parliament you know the press has been asleep on this one don't get me going on uh, lack of uh, mainstream press material but uh, Norman Baker member of parliament is a real hero and um, he basically has uh, destroyed uh, the British official narrative about the death of their own big germ war scientist And, of course, this began to raise interesting questions for us. What secrets, what information did Kelly have that might have wanted someone to kill him? And uh, this is the uh, operation uh, we assumed uh, a few months ago.
0: Wasn't David Kelly quoted as saying, quote, "'If we go into Iraq, I'll end up dead in the woods.'"
1: He was quoted as saying that, and I think that's an interesting quote. We will suggest that um, maybe he didn't say that. We will suggest that uh, the whole notion of David Kelly being interesting because of matters he said involving Iraq, I think that tends toward part of the cover story. What's more interesting to me and Bob Um, And the work we've done for five years is to look at the areas of germ warfare uh, where David Kelly worked, areas that may have violated international treaties, areas that may have gotten the Russians, the Chinese and the Iranians ticked off for correct reason, really dangerous areas uh, may have been what got David Kelly killed. And uh, anything that says, look over here towards Iraq, uh, could be uh, diversionary.
0: I'm speaking with investigative journalist and filmmaker Eric Nadler. Today's show, Anthrax Wars. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Now, David Kelly was in a correspondence of then New York Times uh, journalist Judith Miller. In your book... Uh, you quote David Kelly's last email to Judith Miller of the New York Times where he says, there are many dark forces playing games. Could you talk for a minute about Judith Miller? It may be that people don't realize that in the week before September 11th, 2001, Judith Miller actually, along with a couple of her colleagues, published a New York Times article on bio-germ warfare that probably upset a lot of the powers that be.
1: Yes, I think that's a very important point. Now, Judith Miller is a controversial uh, figure, no doubt about it. And um, the, the official narrative has her being a cheerleader uh, too much uh, for the uh, neoconservative crowd uh, in the rush up to the war in Iraq. And I think to a large extent that um, analysis can hold. And I believe that a lot of the journalism and professional work that uh, Judy Miller has done um, after um, all that controversy with the New York Times also points out her closeness to a neoconservative worldview and um, basically a crowd where she would get leads and just work like any other journalist. And um, I don't get into, it doesn't concern me for Anthrax War, um, Judith Miller's ultimate record on weapons of mass destruction, what interested me about Judy Miller was that one week before September 11, 2001, on September 4th, 2001, she published a page one story uh, with Times colleagues, William Broad, maybe someone else, which detailed that the U.S. may have been involved in germ war slash biodefense research that was skirting awful close the uh, provisions of the International Bioweapons Treaty Convention against such research. And when the New York Times says they're skirting so close it may, you know, most informed observers would say, holy cow, they had done it, you know. So the fact that Judy Miller was calling out the germ warriors within the U.S. defense establishment, including CIA contractors, uh, Battelle Laboratories in uh, Jefferson, Ohio, a very important uh, place where anthrax research is done. The fact that uh, on page one of the Times she shined a spotlight on Battelle and she shined a spotlight on anthrax and she shined a spotlight on the CIA and she shined a spotlight on this maybe violating the international treaty. Whoa, I considered that an amazingly important story. One week later, September 11th, boom, that story is forgotten. Three years later, Judy Miller, scandal, you know, everything from Scooter Libby uh, sourcing to whatever, she's gone. And you can say what you want about Judith Miller's reporting. But that story on the front page of the New York Times, uh, September 4th, 2001, to me, uh, she wins a biowar Pulitzer Prize in my heart. And uh, in my wilder moments, I like to suggest that it was perhaps a story like that which allowed uh, Judy Miller to eventually be assassinated ostensibly by the left screaming, but maybe more by the right-wing military-industrial complex who didn't forgive her for that and didn't back her when they came calling for her head. And thus, uh, she's a complicated person. The fact that she came on camera uh, on Anthrax War and explained the background to that scoop and the difficulty of reporting germ war maneuvers in this culture, Uh, I consider that one of our most important interviews.
0: Is there anything else that you can tell us about uh, Battelle, this privately operated national security lab that Judith Miller was writing about?
1: Well, Battelle is a uh, privately contracted national security uh, contractor. They've done biological defensive work. Some people will say germ offensive work. And, you know, in shorthand, when I talk to uh, people Um, in my everyday conversation of the reporting, you know, I call them uh, bio-Blackwater. You know, Blackwater, we know, uh, was the uh, privatization of ground and security and interrogation forces in uh, U.S. current war planning. My position with a place like Patel is, well, now they've contracted out uh, germ defense, germ war, God knows who else, what secret DARPA program we don't know about that is being handled, um, you know, uh, by this uh, trusted CIA contractor. The tell bottom line is a disturbing privatization of uh, U.S. Uh, military and foreign policy. And, you know, we saw the headlines this week in uh, Afghanistan where a Wackenhut uh, subsidiary had crossed the line on all kind of debauchery and sexual harassment, which I guess is to be understood in a war zone. But what's more interesting to me is the privatization of U.S. military and state policy. And uh, what interests me about Patel is they seem to be the uh, one of the uh, germ warfare bio-blackwaters.
0: According to your book, there are upwards of 400 of these bio labs in the United States. Now, you visited one of them in uh, San Antonio, Texas. You visited the Southwest Foundation for Biomedical Research in San Antonio. This is a private level four lab with federal funding. Isn't a bio level four the highest level there is?
1: That's true. Um, Laboratories that do research into bio-offense or bio-defense are categorized uh, by four uh, levels. BSL is the uh, acronym, which means biosafety level. And then you go 1, 2, 3, 4, BSL-1, BSL-2, BSL-3, BSL-4. BSL-1, you know, your run-of-the-mill horrible disease. BSL-2, the next one. BSL-3, a lot of anthrax. uh, It's really uh, deadly. BSL-4, no antidote, no cure, always deadly. Uh, My God, you don't want any of this stuff leaking out of this laboratory where you've got the latest movie of the week, you know. And uh, what we've seen in the wake of the anthrax attacks has been an enormous federally funded effort to create more BSL-3 and, yes, BSL-4 laboratories in university, um, government contractor, uh, and private settings uh, across the United States. I mean, just go to the Internet, uh, all your uh, listeners, and do BSL-4 Labs U.S. and press the button, and you're going to see one right around the corner from you, and you're going to get really upset. And uh, what used to be the work of uh, private uh, government contractors, a handful, mostly military bases, has now become big business. Everyone and their brother is trying to get a BSL-3 or BSL-4 lab or what have you. And while most of these still remain, BSL-4 especially, still remain in the hands of uh, government operations, we found uh, the only laboratory in the world that is a BSL-4 laboratory, and uh, that's the one you mentioned uh, in your question. It's in San Antonio. It's something called the Southwest Foundation for Biomedical Research. Um, it's been criticized uh, by two successive uh, government accounting office reports prepared at the behest of the U.S. Congress has been uh, criticized for bad uh, perimeter security. This is a laboratory handling the deadliest uh, pathogens known to man, located not far outside a major American uh, city, San Antonio, Texas, um, that has been criticized by the government for woefully lack uh, security. And uh, a cursory examination of um, this explosion in uh, deadly agent, select agent, Uh, laboratories, uh, has revealed an almost unbelievable lack of oversight and security on this thing. And, uh, you know, that's why uh, I'm extremely, and those who have studied this uh, for more than a moment, are extremely concerned about the uh, ill effects that can come from this rapid expansion of uh, germ defense laboratories. Uh, with little gov- oversight. mean, people are worried about Obama uh, overseeing the uh, U.S. health plan uh, that he's thinking about. How about the demonstrable lack of U.S. oversight over these uh, proliferating laboratories dealing with the worst uh, mutations of germs known to man? Uh, this is what keeps uh, me up at uh, night in the wee hours.
0: I'm speaking with investigative journalist and filmmaker Eric Nadler. Today's show, Anthrax Wars. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. You have uh, quite a few interesting uh, details in your book with regard to this lab, this Level 4 lab in uh, San Antonio. You mentioned that you were having a conversation with the, uh, the guard on duty at the gate, and he happened to mention to you that a baboon escaped out of there.
1: Well, yeah, I mean... Uh... Southwest Institute for Biomedical Research um, shares a campus with the, um, I believe it's the world, maybe the U.S., but I, I believe it's the world's largest collection of primates, uh, baboons uh, and such, who are used for a biomedical experiments. And uh, these animals are uh, considered quite important uh, because their uh, genome most closely uh, resembles the human genome. So if you wanted to do testing with substances that you couldn't legally do with humans, well, you'd pick uh, these uh, baboons. And so this very, very spooky facility in San Antonio has, the, uh, I think, the world's largest collection of uh, baboon experimental animals. And things have been done um, at that research facility Everything testing on nerve gases uh, developed by the Nazis in World War II um, to God knows what. And we interviewed a uh, security agent. We were filming the exterior for our film, and the security agent was there. And first of all, as far as security goes, it was private uh, guards, and uh, the barbed wire was down in places. It was a real Mickey Mouse operation. And we were listening to the baboons screaming from the uh, enclosures below this little rise where his uh, guardhouse was. And I said, oh, man, do you get used to this? Do you have this often? And he said, oh, I have it every day, but it's nothing like when one of those guys escape. And I said, my God, a baboon infected with what might have escaped? And he goes, yeah, it's on the news all the time. You can check. They uh, had helicopters, and they shot it with a tranquilizer gun. And uh, sure enough, uh, I went to the news records and the local, uh, I think, Fox station had uh, pretty good coverage of them capturing uh, this baboon. Anecdotal evidence uh, came. He said, oh, and the other thing is uh, this facility leaks all the time. You've got to be very careful. And I said, what do you mean? He goes, uh, you know, uh, there's leakage. When it rains, it gets into the groundwater. My mother works in La Quinta a uh, motel across the street, and she tells everyone, don't drink uh, the water. Now, uh, we had no way of knowing if this was true or not, but my uh, producer uh, and fellow filmmaker Bob Cohn and I, we didn't take any iced drinks till we were well gone uh, from uh, this facility. So uh, it's, uh, it's it's something that should be looked at. You know, the Southwest Foundation for Biomedical Research, as an aside, Uh, Very close, uh, the people who run it, very close to the Bush family. Um, The president of the foundation until recently, a man named John Kerr, childhood friend of uh, former President Bush. His mother was named Molly. That's who the Bushes named their uh, dog after in the first uh, Bush uh, White House. Uh, Pictures of uh, this fellow and the president all over. Uh, My question is, uh, geez, who owns the uh, world's only private bsl4 laboratory well it's a friend of the bush family in texas and uh, we asked the uh, institute what exactly are you doing with anthrax in your bsl4 lab and they said we cannot answer that question due to national security regulations and that's all you need to know about uh, something being very very interesting Uh, happening down there at this BSL-4 lab in Texas, and I urge renewed uh, scrutiny of this place.
0: Do the proliferating bio labs now enjoy liability protection?
1: Uh, It's interesting. uh, You say that most Americans don't know, but we are living in an officially declared anthrax emergency. Uh, this is the only one declared in the history of uh U.S. government or any other government, anthrax emergency. And when you cut through the uh, paper trail and the clauses and this and that, what does that mean? It means that the government nor private medical companies now providing the anthrax vaccine to the U.S. military has any uh, liability in terms of lawsuits eventually brought. In other words, there are hundreds, if not thousands, of uh, people who have claimed that receiving the anthrax vaccine while in the military contributed to Gulf War syndrome. In our film, we quote doctors who have uh, linked it to uh, cerebral palsy and uh, multiple sclerosis and all kinds of internal uh, organ disease. And the Health and Human Services uh, department in the uh, Bush administration uh, signed orders saying that no matter what, um, soldiers could not uh, hold the government or the vaccine manufacturer, this company Bioport that was wildly uh, connected uh, in political circles, uh, could be held ever responsible or liable uh, for any uh, illnesses caused by the usage of this vaccine. And you should also know, all the listeners should know, that uh, it's mandatory for the overseas military right now, but they're also talking about making mandatory for first responders and for police and firemen. And uh, so they're increasing the pool of people put at risk, but this anthrax emergency gives them total uh, liability protection for their actions.
0: What can you tell us about former Secretary of the Navy Richard Danzig? Wasn't he Navy Secretary under Clinton?
1: Uh, Richard Danzig is one of the new um, mandarins of uh, biodefense profiteering. Um, He's on the board of directors of Human Genome Sciences, Incorporated, a uh, Maryland firm, uh, which has a several-billion-dollar contract to develop anthrax uh, antibody maneuvers. I will not put past him. The desire to actually work on a antidote to a coming scourge, um, but I also uh, wonder about uh, insider knowledge about the uh, boom in anthrax related counter therapies. so Danzig, who came of age in the Clinton administration as a Secretary of the Navy. Um, In this last election, he was portrayed in the New York Times as one of Barack Obama's key uh, national security advisors. His name was bandied about on the short list to be the next Secretary of Defense. Uh, Robert Gates, a holdover from the Republicans, he may stay, he may go. If he goes, Danzig will probably be on the short end of the list of possibilities, and uh, all we're saying here is um, as this nomination may or may not be considered, let's see where this guy stands on the anthrax question, and he's on the board of directors of a company which can make billions.
0: I had been wondering what uh, had happened to the Sunshine Project. You say in your book that Edward Hammond, who headed up that project, I guess it was his personal project, shut it down a few months after his congressional testimony due to a lack of funding. Uh, could you tell us what the uh, Sunshine Project was?
1: The Sunshine Project, for uh, a number of years, was the only uh, non-governmental organization, the NGO, um dedicated to monitoring um, the activities of universities, corporations, and the military in the biodefense field to basically see if this was being done in a safe and effective manner, uh, in a lawful manner, and if, in fact, uh, any of these activities might have been coming uh, too close to violating international treaties on uh, germ warfare. And uh, we interviewed Ed Hammond who ran it, a wonderful citizen activist uh, from Texas, who basically tried to um, get money from a whole bunch of NGO operations over the years and basically didn't meet with much success. He was able to keep it going for 10 years and uh, was very effective. He issued reports naming names and critiquing um, all kinds of institutions from the University of Texas um, to big pharmaceutical companies as uh, not uh, conducting themselves uh, responsibly for the citizens and the planet. And um, he even got to uh, testify in front of Congress concerning a particularly egregious case involving the mishandling of deadly pathogens at the University of Texas, which they admitted and had to pay a fine. And uh, that's about the time we got to know Ed when uh, we saw him on the computer one day um, on the C-SPAN feed, I believe, testifying before Congress. And uh, we traveled to the International Bioweapons Treaty Convention annual meeting in Geneva, Switzerland, at the, the U.N. facility there where Ed was monitoring the situation. We talked to him. And we were stunned uh, to learn that uh, just a few months after his testimony and after we met up at the U.N., he was closing shop. He basically said um, he couldn't raise the money. This wasn't an issue that the NGOs uh, thought was winnable. Um, he said a lot of the money goes for nuclear deterrence, and he thinks uh, the anti-nuclear weapon movement is strong, uh, but the germ warfare Uh, monitoring situation is uh, decidedly, woefully underfunded. He was told, he said by uh, NGO funders that this was not a winnable battle, that the uh, biggest enemies, Big Pharma and the rest of the military industrial complex was too well funded. Um, Years spent trying to influence journalists in this area was not successful. And so Ed uh, said, look, life is too short. I've been doing this on my own for 15 years now. And he uh, officially closed up the Sunshine Project and uh, moved to uh, Latin America with his family, his wife's from down there. And he said, I'll just raise my kid, but he said, uh, call me whenever anything interesting happens and I'll uh, I'll plug you in. And so we continue to count Ed as a good friend And uh, I hope as this uh, movement uh, takes shape, and I think we're really at a key moment, you know, in the panic over 2001, the germ warfare industry, they call it biodefense, but it's the same folks who has the expertise. The industry has seen $57 billion in U.S. contracts alone uh, flow to it, and, you know, it's just capitalism and corporate stuff, they're going to go where their money is. And the government will give the money as long as it thinks it can uh, get away with it without a whole bunch of public discussion. And I think if you begin to discuss this germ war renewal in the public space, I think um, we can get political action down the road. Uh, The political imperative is to get the discussion going about what is one of the most underreported yet serious topics of our time. Uh, The headlines are full of it, H1N1, swine flu. Uh, We take the position, where did that come from? Maybe it came from one of those BSL-4 labs that are not being monitored. It seems as good a thing as any as far as I'm concerned. And so every time I see a new disease out there, and I see someone trying to cash in on the vaccine for the disease, you know, I'm old school, and I follow the money, I start to think, where is this all coming from? And uh, I think a good window into all of this was uh, the anthrax attacks of 2001, and we used that case to explore why they don't want to get to the bottom of it, because if they get to the bottom of it, they get to the bottom of too much. And uh, that's uh, why I'm happy to be part of this uh, 9-11 film festival, which challenges uh, conventional narratives. And I think that's uh, what must be done by all free-thinking Americans who believe in the uh, democratic process.
0: Eric Nadler, thank you very much.
1: Thanks, Bonnie. Something happening, yeah, 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 yeah.
0: I've been speaking with Eric Nadler. Today's show has been Anthrax Wars. Eric Nadler is an investigative journalist, author, and filmmaker based in New York. He has written for many national publications, including Rolling Stone, Mother Jones, Harper's, The Nation, and The New Republic. His films have been featured on PBS and the Sundance Channel. He has produced several PBS frontline programs, including BCCI, Bank of Crooks and Criminals, and The Secret Arming of Saudi Arabia. His theatrical film Stealing the Fire in 2002 on the nuclear weapons black market was nominated for Feature Documentary of the Year by the International Documentary Association. He also produced and co-wrote the forthcoming feature film, To Be. His new book, Dead Silence, Fear and Terror on the Anthrax Trail, as well as the film Anthrax War, are available at his website at www.anthraxwar.com. That's A-N-T-H-R-A-X-W-A-R.com. Guns and Butter is produced and edited by Bonnie Faulkner and Yaromako. To make comments or order copies of shows, email us at blfaulkner at yahoo.com. That's B-L-F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at Yahoo.com. Or call 510-848-6767-Extension 628. Our website, gunsandbutter.net, is under reconstruction. love conquers all. You understand what I'm saying? This is a call for all you sleeping souls. Wake up and take control of your own cypher and be on the lookout for the spirit sniper trying to steal your life. You know what I'm saying? Look what decides yourself for peace, give thanks, live life, and release. You dig me? You got me?